Now I want to um, invite you to bow your heads with me. I can't kneel right now because of my uh, leg injury, but uh, we can uh, bow uh, to the Lord together in our hearts, can we not? So let's bow together here. Father in heaven, we again thank you so very, very much for this holy Sabbath day. We thank you for the opportunity that we have, living in the time that we're living in, uh, to uh, see Jesus alive. Without seeing death, we can see Jesus come in the clouds. We have an opportunity for that, uh, an opportunity that other generations uh, would have traded places with us eagerly for. Father, we pray that you'll give us uh, liberally of the Holy Spirit, that we may walk by faith and take every um, opportunity and make it better, improve it. And uh, Lord, we pray that uh, you'll pour out the Holy Spirit upon us to prepare us for that day and to help us to prepare others for that day as well. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus who you uh, sent. You gave up uh, your only Son, that he would come and be like one of us, Uh, not just uh, for the time here on earth, but for all eternity. And uh, that He showed us how to live a righteous life depending uh, solely on the Holy Spirit, which we're able to do as well. And uh, and He died. He took our sins upon Himself, the sins of the whole world, and died a death that we uh, so rightly deserve, Father. And uh, we pray that You forgive us. We pray, Lord, that, that we will come to the foot of the cross daily and remember the price that has been paid for our salvation. And so, Father, uh, please continue to be with us and show mercy upon us. And, Father, we pray and we lift up those that that, uh, we know who are hurting, those who are coming through uh, injuries. Uh, Sister Monica, she's had to have two surgeries. and, And we pray that you will be very near to her and help her to have a speedy recovery and that she can testify to your your power and your grace and strength uh, in her healing process. And we pray for uh, Jerry's client who had his knee replacement surgery and and hopefully learned a lesson and that through Jerry he will be drawn to come to know thee the true God. Um, and please continue to be with Bob. He's uh, you know old, he's older and he's going back to school and uh, he needs the funds. Uh, to, to pay for this, we pray that you, even in the smallest things like this, Lord, you you take care of us. Uh, we ask humbly that you continue to be with all of our children. Uh, Lord, help us to reach them, the ones who are wayward. Please be very near to them. Protect them from the evil one so they can come to know you and make a, a choice to serve thee and be in the kingdom. And may we be a better example to them always, Lord. And I pray for uh, the marriages that in the household of faith, that, that uh, we can learn uh, more about Thee by uh, our marriages, that You will protect us, uh, the attacks that we get from the enemy. Uh, I pray for parents uh, that to be examples to the children. I pray for our children. I pray for our teachers. And Lord, um, I pray that You be very near to them. We live in an age where uh, we see daily in the world that there's just no respect and love for for the children to the parents and and the, the teachers and, and such. And so, Lord, we pray that through the Spirit we may be an example to the world of your ideal. And so please give us grace to do that. And Lord, as I speak this morning, I humbly ask that you give me the words that you wish conveyed to the congregation. And we look at these examples that are found in your Word and, 
and uh, help me to present the principles of righteousness correctly. And, and Lord, encourage all who hear and see this that uh, they should study themselves and check what I say out according to thy word and your, your inspiration. Um, Lord, for uh, I just wish to, to declare the truth. So please soften hearts. Some of these, these things can be hard to, to understand. They can be hard to, to accept. And uh, Lord, but if we keep our eyes upon Jesus, we trust that we will be led into all truth. And so bless us now, Lord, not because we're worthy in any way, but because Jesus is. And we, we ask this in his name. Amen. been looking at what the Bible has to say about the church of God. We've gone through a number of weeks, haven't we? And looking at different characteristics, traits that the Bible lays out about God's people. We've learned quite a bit. And as we've we've studied the inspired writings, we found that they define just two churches in all creation, haven't we? Now I've entitled this this particular study Lessons from a King. Uh, I, I think I'm still going to include it in the series, This Is My Body, Defining God's Church. Because there's there are a number, number of examples that we find throughout the Scriptures uh, defining God's church and defining the church antichrist and how God's church can fall. And, and now I want to clarify that. If we understand who and what the church is, we know that it's the organizations, don't we, uh, that uh, make decisions uh, such. But uh, in our studies, we, we have found that there really are only two churches in all creation. The Bible declares that God has one church, the original and eternal church, of which Jesus Christ is the head. It also defines the church of Antichrist, which originated with sin. And the Bible says it's a temporary organization, isn't it? Its time is short compared to eternity. And Satan is the head of that church. And we find this right at the beginning of the Bible. We find it right in Genesis. In Genesis 3 and verse 15. We've looked at this before. Let's look at it again. It says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman. Now, God is speaking to the serpent. Remember. And the husband and the wife, the man and the woman, they, they chose to, to disobey God. And they fell because of the temptations here of uh, Satan through the serpent, and God's speaking to the serpent, and He says, I'm going to put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And so, we look at here, here right at the beginning of time, Genesis 3.15 here, tells us that the seed of the two churches have enmity towards each other. But that this enmity will eventually come to an end when Satan is crushed. Now it says bruise there, but in the original language it means to crush. And so Satan is going to be crushed by the Lord Jesus Christ, ending this great controversy forever. Praise God. I think this is great news, is it not? Sin will cease to exist someday soon. Come Lord Jesus, amen? Now please don't think, please don't think that Christ emerged from this 
battle unscathed. The nail marks in his hands and feet, the scar in his side, will be eternal reminders, beloved, of the fierce strife in which the serpent bruised the woman's seed. And we as professed Christians, we see the scars of this battle every day in a personal way as we walk by faith. We see the scars of this battle in a greater sense all around the world in the division found, beloved, in all churches that proclaim to be the seed of the woman. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever wondered why there are so many Christian denominations scattered all over this globe? There are a number of reasons that play uh, into it. That was, as we learned last time, an enemy planted tares among the wheat. And history shows that all too often, sad to say, friends, the tares have been able to gain control of the organization of the wheat. Think about this. What happens when the tares take control of your church organization? What happens? First, there's a falling away from the truth. And so the once faithful and true organization leaves God's church and joins the Antichrist church, all the while believing that they are still the true church of God. The tares then persecute the wheat, thinking that they're doing God's will in cleansing the temple, when in fact they are doing the work of the seed of the serpent. Remember, who is at enmity with the seed of the woman? And they bruise the heel. And we see this very thing happening today, beloved. If we have spiritual eyes, we see it. Revelation talks a lot about the two churches. Revelation chapter 17 verse 5 says, And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And we know this in speaking of God's church. Because God's church is described in, in prophecy as a pure woman. This is speaking of a harlot. And notice that Babylon the Great is the mother of harlots. So if these many different professed Christian denominations scattered all over the globe do not have the characteristics of the seed of the woman, there in Genesis 3.15, if they do not have the characteristics that we've learned defying the church of God, then they are a daughter to the mother of harlots, Babylon the Great. They've fallen away from the truth. And then what happens is, they will war against it in the person of God's saints. How does this happen? How does this happen? There are many that believe that it could never happen to their church. (laughs) I run into that quite a lot. In fact, most all denominations believe that they are the one true church of God. The truth is that they are proven to be a daughter to the whore of Babylon by the very Bible that they profess to adhere to. There are some that can see sin and error in the ranks, but but they believe that there is a grand exception. Almost all of them believe there's some grand exception that applies to their church. 
And let me tell you something, beloved. It is the sinful nature of man that promotes a grand exception for sin. Self, you see, will not put self to death. It has to be crucified. There really is no excuse for sin other than ignorance, and there really is no excuse for ignorance in our world today when the Bible is translated into hundreds of languages and found most all over the world. We must study the Word of God if we want to know who His church is and how to be a part of it. Amen? The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, he says, Now all these things happened unto them for examples. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Are we at that time? The experiences of Israel as recorded in the Old Testament are to be examples to us who live at the end of time of the right ways of the Lord and the wrong ways of man. And I think it's very important to heed this counsel of the prophet. We can gain valuable insight from the experiences of Israel. In fact, to some extent, we can see a parallel. And this is what I'm going to speak to in a few moments, friends. Lessons from a king. We can see a parallel in the experience of Saul and David and that of the professed church of God and the true church of God. And we'll look at that in a few moments. My friends, I don't wish to belabor a point, but this idea of a grand exception comes in many different flavors. And it behooves us to have the truth regarding it settled in our minds. And by the way, God loves us and will continue to send messages until we either repent and obey or grieve Him away. Let's not grieve Him away. Amen? Let's not grieve Him away. Some have voiced to me that they get very uncomfortable when studying about who and what the church of God is. You know, and I can appreciate their discomfort for, you know, I've been where they are. But friends, let us pursue the truth. For as Jesus said, it'll make us free. And please understand this, beloved, it falls upon me to make a certain noise to those who are falling away, doesn't it? There is the sound of war in the camp. And as a watchman, I'm not bidden to bite my tongue. I have a responsibility to sound the trumpet and warn the people, especially the Laodiceans. Let me share this with you. It's from the Review and Herald. It's an article that was entitled The Laodicean Church, September 16, 1873. She says, ministers who are preaching present truth should not neglect the solemn message to the Laodiceans. The testimony of the true witness is not a smooth message. The Lord does not say to them, you are about right. You have borne chastisement and reproof that you never deserved. You have been discouraged unnecessarily by severity. You are not guilty of the wrongs and sins of which you have been reproved. That's not what he says. So, sometimes in our walk, in our studies, in the presentations of the truth, it can hurt. 
It goes contrary to what we, we may have believed or thought. But I want you to know it's done from a heart of love, not hate or bitterness. I decided a long, long time ago, friends, that I only have one agenda, and that's to speak the truth always. So please do not mistake me for someone who doesn't love and care for the brethren who are in the, in the fallen churches, all of them. I have many family members and friends who are members of a fallen church. I speak from my heart and from the Word of God, and I hope that you can see that. If not, please don't hold my faults against the truth. As Paul said in Galatians 4.16, Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? In our individual walk, isn't it true that we have to, to know there's a problem before it can be corrected? So I'm letting you know there's a very serious problem in our understanding of who and what the church of God is. And it falls upon you to decide what you'll do with the news. I can share the truth. I can encourage a right action. And I can pray, but it's ultimately up to each person to decide whether to act upon it or not. Isn't that correct? That's the way God created it. And friends, the best way to uncover error is to share the truth. All we have to do is look and see how the Bible defines God's church and that takes care of definition for the Antichrist church, doesn't it? But we have a responsibility. Ezekiel 33 verses 3 to 5 tells us. We have to give a warning. If when he seeth the sword come upon the land, he blow the trumpet and warn the people, then whosoever heareth the sound of the trumpet and taketh not warning, if the sword come and take him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and took not the warning. His blood shall be upon him, but he that taketh warning shall deliver his soul. So I take my responsibility and duty very seriously, as should you. And I'm sounding the trumpet, my friends, and I hope that all who hear it are taking warning. I hope that you're studying to show yourselves approved unto God. Each of us will have to answer to God for our decisions. Isn't that true? And I want to use every opportunity I've been given to share the truth with you so you can make a good decision based upon the weight of evidence. And friends, if I be the one in error, I hope that you'll show it to me so that I can be corrected and rejoice with you together in the truth. Now, I've been studying the life of Saul and, and that of David for a long time. And as I was looking the other day at the calling of Saul to be king, I saw the principles that we've been learning in regards to the true church brought to view, and I want to share it with you. Again, I encourage you to study the account of Saul in the Bible. Study the account in Patriarchs and Prophets. Study these things for yourself. And I'm telling you, the parallels will leap out at you. You see, our God is a God of righteous principles, isn't He? And that's never going to change. It is His character. And as we come close to Him, we will recognize more and more these principles and make them a part of our life, being formed into His image, being formed into His character. We're going to go to 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel, we, we'll read, uh, we read about Israel's first king. And his name was Saul. 
Now, an obvious question to me, when I was a young Christian and I was studying my Bible, I was looking at this, an obvious question to me is, why would Israel want to have a king when they have the Almighty God as their leader? I just That just struck me. I'm a, I didn't understand it. I was a young Christian. Now I have gained more experience. You see, we find the answer in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people and all that they, they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, Samuel, prophet, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Why is it that they wanted a king? Because they had rejected God. How did the people of Israel reject God? How did they do that? Patriarchs and Prophets, page 605. By departing from God's law, the Hebrews had failed to become the people that God desired to make them. And then all the evils which were the result of their own sin and folly, they charged upon the government of God. So completely had they become blinded by sin. Blinded by sin. How is it they they rejected God and wanted a king? First they departed from His law. They started sinning and then they became blinded by sin. Have you ever had the experience of giving a Bible study and the person is so blinded by sin they just can't see the truth? And as we read there in Patriarchs and Prophets, Israel departed from God's law and the results of their becoming blinded by sin was that they charged their iniquity to God, to God's government. You see, God's government was unfair. I mean, they thought. And they now wanted a different government. They wanted one with a human king like all the other nations. All the other nations were so much wiser, see? Let me ask you something. Does that sound familiar in any way? Didn't Lucifer bring the same accusations against the government of God in heaven? Now, what exactly is the government of God? Well, friends, the short answer is the government of God is the organization of all creation under His law. And His law is His character traits. And it is His law that keeps it working in a, His government in a, a, a righteous and orderly manner to do His will. So you can, you can see that the government of God would actually be the church of God. Remember, wherever Jesus abides, there is His church. So Israel was actually unhappy being a part of the government of God, His church. And they no longer wished to be members of His church. So they rejected God, and how did they reject God? By departing from His law. What happens to a church when it departs from God's law? Is it still His church? Well, if in time it does not repent, God leaves and it ceases to be His church. It becomes a new organization, see, that is void of the law of God. Oh, this new organization will profess to be God's church. 
It'll profess to have his law, the writings of the prophets, the testimony of Jesus, but if God is not present, it is not God's church. Some of you Adventists, you've heard this statement before, Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 390. We cannot now step off the foundation that God has established. We cannot now enter into any new organization, for this would mean apostasy from the truth. For you Adventists, if you go and you research that statement out, you'll find that she wasn't talking to people who were leaving the church to form a new organization. She was talking to the general conference in session. Many people don't know that. But our God is a God of mercy, you see. He's a God of long-suffering. And He let Israel have their way in the hope that they would learn a valuable lesson and repent of their sin in rejecting God and choosing a different government. If we go back to Patriarchs and Prophets, page 605. It says, He permitted the people to follow their own choice because they refused to be guided by His counsel. Hosea declares that God gave them a king in His anger. Hosea 13.11 says, I gave thee a king in mine anger and took him away in my wrath. But she references it there, Hosea thirteen eleven. When men choose to have their own way, without seeking counsel from God, or in opposition to His revealed will, He often grants their desires in order that through the bitter experience that follows, they may be led to realize their folly and to repent of their sin. Human pride and wisdom will prove a dangerous guide. That which the heart desires contrary to the will of God will in the end be found a curse rather than a blessing. My dad used this principle on <laughs> my younger brother and I one time. We thought we, it was cool to smoke cigarettes. We got caught. So dad stood there while we smoked the entire pack of cigarettes and got sicker than a dog. He gave us our desire. We didn't really desire to smoke the whole pack right then, but we learned a lesson. Smoking kills, friends. But that's the same principle here. God was trying to reveal to Israel the sin in their hearts by letting them have their way. So Saul was chosen by God and anointed as the first king over Israel. Read that in 1 Samuel chapter 9. If we go back there, keep your finger in 1 Samuel. Verse 15, Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear a day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow about this time I'll send thee a man out of the land of Benjamin. And thou shalt anoint him to be captain over my people Israel, that he may save my people out of the hand of the Philistines, for I have looked upon my people because their cry has come unto me. So he's telling the prophet here, I'm going to be sending you this person. Okay? Now, what kind of person would you think they'd be looking for? I mean, when you want to have a king over you, you don't want... I can't speak for you, I guess. My pictures would be, you know, not somebody who was like a geek. (laughs) Right? You know, you want somebody big, strong, loud, you know, commanding presence. Intimidating. Right? 
I mean, that's those are things that come to my mind. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 608. The personal qualities of the future monarch were such as to gratify that pride of heart which prompted the desire for a king. There was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he, it says in 1 Samuel 9, verse 2, of noble and dignified bearing. This is speaking of Saul. Of noble and dignified bearing in the prime of life, comely and tall, he appeared like one born to command. Yet with these external attractions, Saul was destitute of those higher qualities that constitute true wisdom. He had not in youth learned to control his rash, impetuous passions. He had never felt, get this, friends, he had never felt the renewing power of divine grace. All looked really good on the outside. Saul did. Really good. But it, here's a here's a key here. He had not in his youth learned why it's so important to have God in our homes especially when we have young children and to train up our children in the way that they should go according to God's word we enable them then see as young people to control the lower passions as they become an adult and hopefully we teach them and they accept the power of divine grace from God. But Saul was not this way, see. Saul's a good representation, really symbol, of the professed church that by all outward appearance seems to be righteous and pious, but inwardly is carnally minded. So God told Samuel to look for on the morrow, and Samuel obeys God. He anoints Saul as king. And in chapter 11, we read how Saul defeated the Ammonites in the name and under the direction of the Lord. And so far, Saul was ruling as a leader who worshipped and obeyed the true God. You see, he started down the right course, but remember, he'd never felt the renewing power of divine grace. And keep in mind that the definition of spiritual Babylon is that it was once a pure church, but has become corrupt. (laughs) That's why it's said to have fallen. So Saul defeats the Ammonites, and it was after this first victory while Israel was rejoicing that Samuel rebuked them. He rebuked them for rejecting God and choosing to have an earthly king. And to show them that they sinned before the Lord for asking for a king to rule over them, and to encourage them as well that they could have confidence in God and that He still loved them and wanted them to come back to Him, Samuel called for rain during the dry season. And friends, let me tell you, that was a mighty miracle indeed. It didn't rain in that season. It was the time of wheat. It was the time of harvesting. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 16. Now therefore stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call unto the Lord and He shall send thunder and rain that ye may perceive and see that your wickedness is great which ye have done in the sight of the Lord in asking you a king. So Samuel called unto the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. 
And all the people said unto Samuel, Pray for thy servants unto the Lord thy God, that we die not. For we have added unto all our sins this evil, to ask us a king. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 615. Before there could be any hope of prosperity for Israel, they must be led to repentance before God. In consequence of sin, they had lost their faith in God. You see? That's what she says. And their discernment of His power and wisdom to rule a nation. Lost their confidence in His ability to vindicate His cause. Before they could find true peace, they must be led to see and confess the very sin of which they had been guilty. God is merciful and forgiving, ever desiring to show favor to His people when they will obey His voice. And remember what, why did they call for a king? Because they had broken God's law and they became blinded by this, this sin. Beloved, God is patient with His people. And He wants them to have a teachable spirit and and to repent from mistakes. If it were not so, there would be no call for repentance from God to the Laodicean church. Will the professed church heed the call and repent as Israel did this day? We go on in the story. The next year of Saul's reign, there was a battle with the Philistines, and it was here that Saul made a great departure from the Lord. You see, the people saw that they were, they were outnumbered. And they became very afraid. And they began going AWOL. You know? They were fleeing the army of the Lord. And this is where we begin to see the true character of Saul displayed. And it was found that his character did not call the people of Israel to have confidence in God. Therefore, the people fled their responsibility to stand for God. And the same can be said for the professed church, see? Its actions do not call the people to have confidence in God and to spread the, the present truth of the three angels' messages. So what, do you, what you get is a, a peace and safety call. And you get that call because it has become a friend of the world like the other daughters of Babylon the Great. Let's go back to 1 Samuel 13. This time, verse 8. And he tarried seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. But Samuel came not to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. And Saul said, Bring hither a burnt offering to me, and peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And it came to pass that as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him, that he might salute him. And Samuel said, What hast thou done? What have you done, Saul? And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that thou camest not within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash, therefore, said I, the Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication unto the Lord. I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt offering. I forced myself. How do you like that? I forced myself. You see, Saul had been instructed to wait seven days until Samuel would come to offer offerings and show him what to do in the battle. And this was a test, you see. This was a test of Saul's loyalty and dependence upon God. 
Samuel was instructed by God to tarry a bit, but not past the seventh day, but to be late. But what happened? Sam, you know, Saul became impatient when Samuel didn't arrive, when he thought he should. And then he disobeyed the Lord by making the offerings to God himself instead of waiting for the prophet and priest, Samuel, to do it as was commanded. Did you notice that in Saul's response to Samuel, he didn't offer an excuse that he had misunderstood his instructions or that they were not clearly stated? Did you happen to catch that? You see, on the contrary... He frankly admitted the deliberate violation of his instructions in favor of his own wishes. He decided that he was wise enough to lead without the help of God, you see. But he, but he still professed to be doing it for God. That's the subtle deception, friends. And it's the same mistake Eve made in the garden. She thought she was wiser, see. I can make that decision. I don't need God's help. I'm going to be like God, remember? You go to verse 13. Samuel replied, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which He commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. If you if you'd obey. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart, and the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. In their disobedience they called to have a king. And they got a king that wouldn't uphold God, that wouldn't point them to God, to bring confidence in them to God. <laughs> to bring them to, to have confidence in God. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 621. So long as the king and the people would conduct themselves as subordinate to God, so long he could be their defense. But in Israel... No monarchy could prosper that did not in all things acknowledge the supreme authority of God. You see, the true church of God has a teachable spirit for its led of God. It waits patiently upon the Lord for direction and counsel, not wanting to go against the will of God. It obeys the Lord in all things. It will take rebuke as it is intended, making no excuses and repenting, acknowledging the authority of God. Saul sinned against the Lord and was unrepentant of it. It was revealed that Saul was full of pride and the Lord cannot allow one with an unteachable spirit to continue to rule over his people. Next page, Patriarchs and Prophets 6.22. Saul was in disfavor with God and yet unwilling to humble his heart in penitence. What he lacked in real piety, listen to this, what he lacked in real piety, he would try to make up by his zeal in the forms of religion.
You see, friends, those who profess to be followers of God and yet continue in sin have convinced themselves that the forms of their religion will save them. And sadly, this this became the norm, it seems, throughout Israel's history. So much so that by the time the Messiah arrived, they didn't recognize Him because they had traded the truth for their man-made religious traditions. The temple, you see, became God, much like the organization today has become the church. The same attitude of Saul is prevalent today. Open sinners in the church believe they are saved by their good intentions. Tares, foolish virgins, and Laodiceans alike are convinced that they are saved based upon their zeal in the forms of religion. Saul is an example of a church that is fallen and yet maintains that it is still the chosen of God. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 634. No matter how zealous men may be in their observance of religious ceremonies, the Lord cannot accept them if they persist in willful violation of one of His commands. How many commands? Willfully and persistently breaking just one of God's commands. But I want you to know that Saul was not yet forsaken of the Lord. He still had an opportunity to repent and have his heart changed and come into accordance with the commands of God. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 627, you back up. Saul had failed to bear the test of faith in the trying situation at Gilgal and had brought dishonor upon the service of God. But his errors were not yet irretrievable. And the Lord would grant him another opportunity to learn the lesson of unquestioning faith in His Word and obedience to His commands. There's principles here that we can learn about God's character. God gives His professed church every opportunity to learn from its mistakes, repent and obey Him. Saul was given another chance to learn and be obedient. Samuel was sent with a message for Saul to attack the Amalekites and not to leave anything alive or take any spoils whatsoever. Seems simple enough, doesn't it? Saul obeyed in attacking and defeating the Amalekites. But he disobeyed in that he took the king captive and the people took the best livestock as a spoil of war. Look what we have done. You see, when confronted by Samuel about this, what did Saul do? He lied. He lied to to Samuel by saying he feared the people and that the spoils were meant to be an offering to the Lord. 1 Samuel 15 verse 22, And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? This was our scripture reading today, wasn't it? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. I bet that went down real well with Saul. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 636. 
The Lord, having placed on Saul the responsibility of the kingdom, did not leave him to himself. He caused the Holy Spirit to rest upon Saul to reveal to him his own weakness and his need of divine grace. And had Saul relied upon God, God would have been with him. So long as his will was controlled by the will of God, so long as he yielded to the discipline of his spirit, God could crown his efforts with success. But when Saul chose to act independently of God, and friends, we know that when you act independently of God, you're forming a new organization. See, You're actually joining the Antichrist. She says, but when Saul chose to act independently of God, the Lord could no longer be his guide and was forced to set him aside. Then he called to the throne a man after his own heart, not one who was faultless in character. It's important. One perfect. But who, instead of trusting to himself, would rely upon God and be guided by His Spirit, who when He sinned would submit to reproof and correction. Friends, I'll tell you, these inspired statements here enforces, reinforces the principle that there is no grand exception for anyone or for any church organization. It also shows the principle of Conditions. From Evangelism, the book of Evangelism, page 695, it should be remembered that the promises and threatenings of God are alike conditional. God anointed Saul to be the leader of Israel. Let me say that again. Think about that. God anointed Saul to be leader of Israel. God anointed Saul. Well, that means that Saul was king forever. Right? That's what some think. But Saul eventually chose his own way instead of continuing in the way of God. Saul forsook the Lord and the Lord set him aside. Do you see it? He set him aside for another who would be faithful and obedient to him. And this has been a principle that has been seen throughout the history of God's people from the beginning of time to this day. We see this example played out in the calling of Saul. He was chosen and anointed of God, but then fell into apostasy. And the way the Lord dealt with the apostasy of Saul... It's a lesson for us to learn on how he deals with the apostasy of his professed church. Any apostasy. Now some say that the professed church is the chosen and anointed of God. That it is the apple of his eye. That no matter what it does, it's going through to the kingdom. This kind of blind faith is not what God requires of us as a people, friends. Did Saul go through no matter what he did? He was anointed of God. This is also an indication of how well the devil has confused the definition of whom and what is the true church of God. Let me ask you, 
Is it possible for a church organization to fall into apostasy? Absolutely. The Bible shows that very clearly. Is it possible for a church organization to come out of apostasy? Sure it is. Faithful people make up the church and sometimes they fall and repent. It's the same principle. The Old Old Testament has examples of where God's people have repented and come back to Him in full faith and obedience. Is it possible for a church that is in apostasy to be lost? Absolutely. This is seen throughout Bible history as well. But Saul was chosen and anointed by God. Surely God could never remove him. The Bible tells us he was set aside, though outwardly Saul appeared to still be the anointed leader of Israel. Now friends, do you see a parallel between the professed church of our time and Saul? And let me tell you, it wasn't an arbitrary act on God's part removing Saul. Beloved, this belief in a a grand exception comes from a once saved, always saved mentality. Like you stated just a moment ago. The Bible doesn't teach that at all. If a church proves to be unfaithful and, and is unrepentant, then the Lord will eventually set it aside. And we must come to grips with this as a people if we're to progress with the truth. Notice this statement from Upward Look, page 131. The Lord Jesus will always have a chosen people to serve Him. Praise God. When the Jewish people rejected Christ, the Prince of Life, He took from them the kingdom of God and gave it unto the Gentiles. Now notice this. God will continue to work on this principle with every branch of His work. And here's the big one. When a church proves unfaithful to the word of the Lord, whatever their position may be, however high and sacred their calling, the Lord can no longer work with them. That's just... I don't see how you can get that confused. That's just straight out, boom. Fact. Principle. Then she says, others are then chosen to bear important responsibilities. But if these in turn do not purify their lives from every wrong action, if they do not establish pure and holy principles in all their borders, then the Lord will grievously afflict and humble them, and unless they repent, will remove them from their place and make them a reproach. That's not confusing, friends. At one time, Saul was chosen as the anointed of God. Saul chose to reject God by being disobedient to God's commands. Thus, Saul apostatized from the truth. Now, now think about this next statement while contemplating the fall of Saul. The Great Controversy, page 383. The message of Revelation 14 announcing the fall of Babylon must apply to religious bodies that were once pure and have become corrupt. 
Saul was anointed, anointed of God, and yet became corrupt. So God set Saul aside and chose another to bear important responsibilities. The principle is what I'm emphasizing here, okay? Get the principle here. God then chose another to bear that important responsibility. Let's go back to 1 Samuel, this time chapter 16, verse 11. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are here all thy children? And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest. And behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and withal of a beautiful countenance, and goodly to look upon, or look to, excuse me, goodly to look to. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. What happened? The Spirit of the Lord did what? Departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. Now, some people get confused by this. What's being said here? Saul had rejected the Spirit of God. He committed the unpardonable sin. And there was nothing more that God could do for him. It was not that the Spirit withdrew from Saul arbitrarily, but rather that Saul rebelled against his guidance and deliberately withdrew himself from the influence of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Scriptures sometimes represent God as doing that which He does not specifically prevent, you see. In giving Satan an opportunity to to demonstrate his principles, God, in effect, would limit his own power. You see what I mean? Of course, there were limits beyond which Satan could not go. You go to the book of uh, Job and you see that. But within his limited sphere, he did have divine permission to act. Thus, although his acts are contrary to God's will, he can do nothing except what God permits him to do, and whatever he and his evil spirits may do is done with, in essence, God's permission, you could say. It's not that God condoned it. He allowed it. So therefore, you know, when God withdrew his own spirit from Saul, Satan was free to have his way, is what we're reading. And we can see this to be true. Saul acted at times as one who was demon-possessed and demented. How did Saul behave toward David, the newly anointed of the Lord? Now remember at this time, Saul was unaware that David had been anointed. But how did he act toward David? At first he loved David because of what David did for him in playing music to soothe his conscience, you remember? Now, there's no time interval you know, given between the announcement of God's chosen of another man to replace the king, but Saul would certainly be on the watch for signs of the person who was to succeed him, don't you think? And when David defeated Goliath in the name of the Lord, Saul suspected him as his replacement. Wouldn't you too? And it didn't take long for the king to try to destroy the one God had chosen to take his place. Remember, Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. Remember? 
The Spirit of God had left Saul. The Spirit of God entered into David after he's anointed. <coughs> Excuse me. And then the king, Saul, tried to destroy God's chosen. After he heard the songs favoring David over Saul in his battle with Goliath, he became jealous. Remember, he threw his javelin at David. And that was his first attempt to kill David. Then Saul placed David at the front lines of battles in the hope that he would be killed. And then he deceived him by promising him Merab, but giving her to another. I think he was trying to, to, to get David to act rashly so he could punish him. After that, he gave David permission to earn you know, the dowry for Michal by going on a dangerous mission. Step by step, Saul was trying to destroy David, you see. In 1 Samuel 19, verse 1, we read it. And Saul spake to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. And let me tell you, friends, the the course of Saul will be the course of all who reject God. A church that rejects God will war against the true church. There's that enmity that is placed between the two. And we see this time and time again throughout history. We see it today as the professed church is joined with the enemies of God to make war against those who are trying to serve God and spread the final message of warning to the world. It's remarkable. The Bible is true. I shake my head sometimes. You know, I, I see outrage by Christians that, that the world's persecuting them. The world's going to persecute us. I'm not saying it's right. But don't act like it's a surprise. You're not going to get sympathy from the world. Let's look at Saul. Saul Saul was anointed king, but then Saul stepped off the platform of truth. Thus he, he joined a new organization that was in apostasy against God. And that new organization has been around, friends, for a long time. For it's the synagogue of Satan. And any person... Organization or church that rejects the truth joins that new organization. Always remember that there are only two churches in all creation. God's church, which has existed as long as God has existed, and Satan's church, which is the new organization. Don't ever forget that. Saul was anointed by God and so was Lucifer. You realize that? Saul rejected God and so did Lucifer. Lucifer formed his own church and Saul joined Lucifer's church when he refused to obey God. Saul warred against the church of God by fighting against the truth and the Lord's anointed one David. The same principles are alive and well today, beloved. There is a war going on for the souls of men. Satan wars against Christ. Christ does not war against himself. Any church that makes war against those who keep the commandments of God is making war against God and has rejected Him just as sure as Saul did. And God will set that once pure organization aside and choose another to carry the responsibility. Now friends, this does not mean 
that the former cannot repent and come back to God, but there are few instances in history where this has happened. And it will reach a point where they will have grieved away God's Spirit, just as Saul did. And think about this for a moment. Saul tried to kill the anointed of God. While David refused to kill Saul, even though he had many chances to do so. And so Saul was showing forth the character of the church to which he really belonged, wasn't he? And just as Saul tried to kill David, the synagogue of Satan will try to kill God's people. It's happened in every generation, it'll happen in ours. Revelation 13 tells us about this final conflict and the eventual death decree against the faithful. Revelation 13, 15. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause, let's make laws and legislate, that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. There's a death decree. Saul tried to kill David, but was unable to do so. Why? Because David was true to God and obeyed him. Thus having the full protection of God. Sure, David fell. He fell hard sometimes. But unlike Saul, David repented of his sins. The beast will try to kill the remnant seed of God, but will be unable to do so because they keep the commandments of God and they have the faith of Jesus, thus having the full protection of God. I'm speaking symbolically of those, those who overcome and have the victory. I found it interesting that in his last act of disobedience, Saul committed self-murder, killed himself. And friends, I'll tell you, the devil, his angels, and the wicked of all ages, which could have had eternal life, bring death upon themselves because of their sin and rebelling against God. And they're going to partake of the lake of fire. Yes, beloved, there are many lessons we can learn from King Saul about the fallen church in comparison to King David, the true church. John speaks of the remnant seed of the woman in Revelation 15, verse 2. He says, And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. It is the remnant seed, friends. The church of God. His people that gain the victory over the beast, his image, mark, and name. It is the weed of God that gain the victory. It is the wise virgins that gain the victory. And I'll tell you, it's not the church of Laodicea that gains the victory. If you read Revelation 3, you study it out, you find it's the church of Philadelphia that gains the victory. Trust God's word, friends. God's not arbitrary. There's no grand exception. Sin will be destroyed and unrepentant sinners with it. Hold fast the faith that was once delivered unto our fathers and keep your eyes single to the glory of God. Let's not be as Saul. Let us give our whole heart to God as did King David and we will be among that church triumphant that will see Jesus come in the clouds and we will forever be with Him. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we again thank you so very, very much for this Holy Sabbath day. We thank you, Father, for your holy word, for the inspired writings that gives us counsel, gives us the truth. And Father, sometimes the truth is can be hard to understand. Sometimes it's hard to, to take. Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it really hurts. But it's still the truth. And so, Father, I pray. I pray that you'll be with each and every one of us as we seek for the truth, even though it may greatly hurt. But we know that's only for a time. I pray that you will soothe, soothe us as we come to accept the truth. May we stand on the truth. Lord, I pray that you prepare your people for what's coming ahead. We're just not ready. We're just not. We need your help. Help us, Lord, for it's coming quickly. May we be found faithful. I pray in Jesus' name.